Thank you to the worship team, and thank you all to being here. It is spring break weekend, so all of you get a gold star for being here on spring break weekend. Um, that's impressive, <laughs> especially if you have children who are excited to not be at school today. Um, I know, as I was reading this passage this week, I know exactly what it means when it says to give your firstborn, because like I said during the prayer request, we're closing on a house in about a week or so, and it feels like we're giving our firstborn to find a home in the Cedar Park Leander area. It really, really does. Um, luckily, we don't have to, and my oldest daughter doesn't have to find a new place to live with the mortgage company, because I don't think the mortgage company would be as fun as our house, um, or at least I'm pretty sure she thinks that too. But as we come this week and we look at this, I want to continue our series. Leading up to Easter, we're going to be talking about the one thing, and this is based off of our reading in Acts last week, where Peter turns to the person begging for help at the gateway and says, I have neither gold nor silver to give you, but the one thing I have, I give you. And then he says to him, in the power, in the name of Christ, take your pallet and walk. And he stands up and he walks. The one thing that we need is Christ. And we're going to begin to unpack that over the next four weeks. One of the things that annoys me the most about the church, uh, the whole series I'm also, as a side note, going to use so you can get to know me, telling you mostly personal stories about myself, my own experiences and opinions about things, um, as a quick way to get to know who I am as a pastor, who I am as a preacher, some of the values and beliefs I have. That way you're not wondering six weeks from now, I'm like, wow, man, I really, I wonder what he thinks about, you know, iPhone or Android? I mean, ask Ashley. She will gladly tell you it's not iPhone. <laughs> I just heard the reaction from the living room there. <laughs> but um, on a serious note, one of the things that annoys me about the church is the fact that we say vague and abstract things to a world that is very real and very hurting. And we say things when people lose their job or when they lose a loved one or when life doesn't go its way, their way, we say things like, well, just give it to God. Just pray about it and it'll be okay. And as a pastor, as a person coming from a non-religious household growing up, that has always annoyed me. Because when someone is hurting to the point where they have lost a member of their family, it almost feels vapid and empty to say to them, we'll just give it to God. As if the words are hollow and have no force or weight. And I've always struggled with that. Or many of the other abstract concepts we like to answer the challenges of the world with. When an earthquake happens and people are homeless or dying. And all we can do is pray for them. It feels hollow for me sometimes. Or some of the times when we offer nothing more than our praise and song in face of the struggles that this life constantly sets up in front of all of us. So one of the things I've struggled with as a person of faith, but also as a pastor, what more can we do? What more can we say in those seasons of life that are difficult, that are hard, that all people struggle with? Because that's part of being human. 
is what we experience in pain and suffering. I think it's too easy for us as people of faith at times to retreat back into the abstract because it's hard to answer and deal with difficult questions and situations. It's much easier just to say them, go and be blessed on your way. But as it says in the book of James, that's not quite good enough. That's not quite doing enough justice for God. We see this in the passage we read today. If the one thing it is that we have to offer the world that we have for ourselves is Christ, then that should give us something more than just platitudes and empty words when we offer that to the people around us, especially the people who are hurting and suffering and in need. And that leads us to Micah, one of the Old Testament prophets, one of the minor prophets. I'm going to be very honest with you as I begin. You know, in my seminary required all the students to have both ancient languages, both Greek and Hebrew, and they were very clear up front with us. You're either going to be love one and hate the other, or you're going to be good at one and despise the other. I was really good at Greek. I love Greek. I love the Gospels. I love the language and the system. It's awesome. I don't know about Hebrew. It's hard. It's difficult. They literally write it the wrong direction, in my opinion. And I'm pretty sure I got a passing grade because my professor took great pity on me for two semesters and said, wow, you and your group of friends tried really hard. Bless well, we were, we were north in Kentucky, so they don't quite say bless your heart there. But if they were from the south, that's exactly what she would have said to me as she gave me my final back, a little, little more red than it was when I turned it in. And as a constant reminder, I wear my wedding ring, which is literally written in Hebrew. And every now and then I think of how much I love my wife, I look at it, and I also look at the Hebrew, I'm like, man, Hebrew was terrible. I can say that because she's not here this morning. <laughs> but, but on a serious note, we come to the Old, Old Testament and the prophets and the minor prophet Micah, and he says this, and I want to unpack this in a little bit more of context. He says uh, a phrase in verse 8, calling us to live in three different ways. And it's concrete, and that's what I like about it. It's things that can actually be done, actions we can physically take, things that we can add to a to-do list and we can check off. But we can't get addicted to that action alone. There's a different component that goes in with this. In case you haven't noticed in our faith, that different component is what we believe. There's this tension that's always building in our faith between what we believe or our doctrine and what we do or our action. It's a tension between what we profess on Sunday morning, and what we practice every other hour of the week. And that's a tension that we live in as people of Christ, one where we hold in tandem the teachings of our scripture 
and our need to be in a very real world where we hold in tension the abstract reality of a God that exists beyond time and space and the fact that we have to wake up tomorrow morning and go to work unless we work for a school district. And then you get to sleep in unless your children or grandchildren get up early and then I'm sorry, I can't really help you there. But we have to hold these things in tension. And what's beautiful, I think, about the Micah passage is the context we find it. And God is using Micah to declare what some Old Testament scholars would call almost a lawsuit. He's not condemning the nation of Israel outright, but he is, at the beginning of chapter 6, referencing the ageless mountains, which is kind of comedic because the mountains in, in that area of the world aren't really big. They're kind of like hills. And he's referencing them, though, saying, look, what have I done wrong to you, nation of Israel? What have I done to fail you? Why are you turning away from me? Why are you rebelling against me? And then we see in six, verse 6 through 8, kind of the nation's response as Micah begins to talk, giving voice to the concerns of the people. And it's funny because he, he goes down this laundry list of actions, concrete actions. You know, I could, would it be okay if I, I did a burnt offering, just like it says in Leviticus? Would it be okay if I came in and I offered you not just the minimal offering, but I gave you all of the year-old lambs? Would it be okay, would it, would it be better, God, if, if I poured out a torrent of oil, not just the, the regular oil offering that you're required in our temple worship? Would it be better, God, if I literally gave you my firstborn child? Direct reference to someone having done that in the past. Would it be good enough, God? And then we get to verse 8, where the prophet realizes and gives words to the truth that no. Just those vapent actions alone are not enough. And he lists out three things that are required to do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. It's interesting, although those are concrete actions, there's something deep and spiritual about them. Because they speak not just to tomorrow's to-do list for the first day of spring break for some, but they speak to the nature of a person's being. Who we are. What's in our heart. You know, growing up, I grew up, as I've said, in Belton, which is that way. And I played tennis in high school. I've had several people ask if I played golf. I did not play golf. I'm pretty terrible with golf clubs. If you would like to see, you can always take me out and see that I can't really drive the ball straight or in any direction, really. But in tennis, I loved tennis, but I hated the off-season. The off-season was terrible. We had to start every practice by running a mile. And then, other than that, we had to go to the weight room every day. And we weren't on the court at all. We were always doing 
strange training drills or agility drills or running lines or running bleachers until the one kid fell down and hurt himself. And then we didn't run bleachers anymore. We were deemed not, not agile enough, I guess, by the athletics department. So we just ran more. I mean, the weight room was terrible. I never understood why. Why do we have to do this other than the fact that the coach tells us it's the right thing to do? Why do we continue to visit it over and over again? And then he'd have this rotation of the different stations and resistance machines, all these things I really dislike doing because I would have rather been on the court playing. That was the sport I signed up for. That's what I found my joy in and what was fun. And yet I had to do all these other things. And the running was the worst because I hate running. How many people love running? There are a couple people I see on your face, you're like, I want to raise my hand, but I'm going to be all alone, so I'm not going to raise my hand. Yeah, that's exactly it. Very few people like running. Very few. And they, they cloister together in these groups that like to run a lot, and they talk about running, and running is, is a passion of theirs. Now I run every day because I need to be healthy now. But every single day, it's a battle. Why am I doing this? It, it, is, it very much recalls that mental state I had as a high school student. Why am I in the weight room? Why am I running? Why do I have to do sprints and run lines? We don't understand the actions because we don't grasp why or the motivations behind them. What propels us forward to do these things? What propels us forward to get up in the morning before I have to go to the office and put some smelly gym clothes on and go to the gym and run on one of the machines until I'm tired and I'm sweaty and I really wish I was still in bed? What propelled me to listen to that coach and he said, you know, Eric, you've got to go to the weight room at least three times a week during practice and you have to do these things in order. There was a deeper motivation there. And somewhere along the line, I didn't pick it up. And for a lot of people of faith, that's how we are. There's a deeper motivation for why we do what we do. And it's found in that tension somewhere between what we profess and believe and what we live out as our faith. Somewhere between our doctrine and our action, our professions and our practice, we find that motivation that propels us forward, that pushes us in a direction to do things we otherwise wouldn't do or to be what we otherwise wouldn't be. In that tension, something stirs in our hearts and overcomes our mind to become the living embodiment of the Christ we worship for the world around us. You know, this week was kind of a blur of a week. I started a week ago. And then immediately got in my car Sunday afternoon. I drove to Glen Rose, where we have our conference church camp, Glen Lake. A few of you have probably heard of it. It's a magical place, except for the people who were there this week with me. 
<laughs> we're, I'm, a, I'm part of a, a body known as the Board of Ordained Ministry. We're the credentialing body for our, our regional area. So we interview new pastors every spring. And by the time they come to us, they've been through, I don't know, three to five years of interviews at a local district level. And then they come to us after they complete grad school, after they have checked a million different boxes. And then they each come for three interviews this week. And I feel for him. I feel for him partially, one, because I lead an interview team. But two, that is so intimidating to sit in front of a group of pastors, not once, not twice, but three different times, and have them literally pick apart what you believe and how you live. Three times for 45 minutes each. On various different things they do, wide ranging from theology and emotional intelligence, which is my interview team, all the way to their preaching and teaching and, and their polity and their practical ministry. How do you actually run a church? How do you manage people? It is stressful. But I can't think of something that embodies better the tension we find in Scripture than the process we put our pastors through to simply become one of us. Because they come, and it's funny, they prepare a file before they come, and it's due January 15th every single year, and then it's passed off to the interview teams, and each person's file is like 60 or 70 pages. It includes theological writings, sermons. It includes a background check, a credit check, a health check, a psychological check, all these HIPAA forms. Like it's, it's this massive, bulging thing of documents. And they hand one to us for each candidate. And so we spend the first three months of the year, getting to know these candidates through their writing and their paperwork, and then they come before us. And the tension that boils up is that they know exactly what to say on the doctrine part or the profession part because they've just come out of school for this. They know all of the right words, all of the right phrases mostly, and they know... I'm glad someone caught that subtlety. <laughs> they know what to say in their writing and how to say it to sound good. And then some of them who have experience already in churches, they know exactly how to act, how to behave, especially if they've interviewed for professional credentialing in a different field before. If they're coming to us and they, they maybe have a law degree already or if they've been in the medical field or they've been in law enforcement or something, they know exactly how to act. But I realized something this year as we're going over candidates again and again is that what we're looking for isn't necessarily how to say what they believe or how to act right. What we're looking for is something in the middle that's very different. How they are as a person and where their heart is with Christ. And that's profound because that's not something you can learn in graduate school. They don't teach you how to have a good heart. They can teach you about having a good heart, but they can't teach you how to have a good heart. And on the other end, they might have all of the experience in the world and act right and find their P's and Q's. But as well as someone can act, or at least behave and look well for a couple hours, that doesn't necessarily tell us about their heart. What we listen for, I've realized in these interviews, is for the person's heart to speak. And these are not simple and easy questions. These are weighty questions that we all deal with in life. What is evil? Have you ever thought about that? 
What is evil? Oh, we can all point to an example of it here or there in the pages of history. We can point to an example of it when we walk the fields of a battleground like Gettysburg, or for me, when I walked through the doors of a concentration camp in Germany for the first time, we can point to it, but have we ever really thought about what it is in our own heart? Because there's something about that that exists in all of us. What does it mean, as one of my colleagues kept asking this week, when we say Jesus is Lord, with that dated language being Americans, being Texans on top of that, We don't know what kings are. But what does it mean when we really say that? And not just in an academic sense that you can tell me what the word curios means. And not just in an action sense that you can tell me how you would structure the life of a church around that statement. But for you personally, what does that mean? How does that change you? How has that affected you personally? How have you been changed because of that simple phrase? These are the kind of questions we ask weighing in all these things. But what's funny, I realized, is there are questions that we need to ask all of ourselves as we approach the text today. Because Micah betrays something in all of us. That we gravitate either towards our doctrine because it's easy just to profess things. Or we gravitate towards our actions just because it's easy to live things. Because all of us don't want to do the hard work sometimes that seasons like Lent call us to. And that's examining our own hearts. But that's precisely what God had called the nation of Israel to do. when he called Micah to be a prophet. It's exactly what he called them to do in verse 8 of today's reading. Examine your heart. Anyone, anyone can regurgitate doctrine. Anyone can act well enough for a moment in time. But real faith is something that springs forth from the heart. In fact, that's what Christ was after the whole time. We see that on the Sermon on the Mount as Jesus is unpacking the Old Testament and some of the, the passages and scriptures. And he says in Matthew 5, he says, you've heard it said, don't murder And this is a pretty well-known one. Don't murder. But I say to you, anyone who hates someone else is guilty of murder. Do you see what he did? He took a basic action that was born out of the Pharisees' doctrine, and he took it to a different level, a level of the heart, where he was chasing not the obedience of a human, but an obedience of their heart, where they would supplement not their actions, but their identity with Christ. We see it again a little further in Matthew's gospel as he talks in the very last moment of teaching. 
The very end of the point where Matthew's gospel records Christ's teaching before switching over just to the passion narrative as he enters in Jerusalem. And the last teaching he gives is about separating everyone at judgment, you know, the goats and the sheep. And he separates the groups and he says to the sheep, you're welcome, come enter within me into paradise because when I was hungry, you fed me. When I was thirsty, you Gave me something to drink. When I was naked, you clothed me. And they said, Lord, when did we do any of this for you? And he said, every time you did it for a stranger, any time you did it for the least of these, you did it for me. And then on the other end, you had all of the people who professed the words and the belief of Christ And he banished them and he said, I'm banishing you because you never fed me. You never gave me anything to drink when I needed it. You never clothed me when I was naked. And they said to him, Lord, when did we see you like that? And he said, every time one of the least of these came to you asking it was me. And we often, as a church, glaze over that. We like to take this story that is Christ's last teaching in Matthew's gospel, and we like to boil it down to, well, it's mission work. It's about mission work, and we need to be going and helping the poor and and the broken and doing good things for them, which is part of the interpretation of this passage. But what's more importantly is when it's read through the lens of Micah 6, 8, we see something slightly different, and I think much more important Because then it echoes the Sermon on the Mount. Because it's a point where Jesus is assessing not just if they cared for the poor, but he's assessing their hearts. Was your heart in a place that the compassion of God flowed out of it to the strangers? Those who are naked and hungry and thirsty and broken and damaged and worn out by life. Or could you just recite the creeds of the church? Could you just continue to say the things the Pharisees said and the teachings they taught over and over again? Or was your heart so convicted by the presence of God that it was changed, that it was different? That's what Christ is after. Not whether you can say the Nicene Creed forwards and backwards from memory. Impressive if you pick that one, it's a long one. Not whether you're always at the soup kitchen or the homeless shelter every single day of the week, although he values greatly all of the people. But the thing that Christ is after when it comes to you and me, the one thing he wants And the one thing we have to offer him if we claim Christ as our one thing is our heart, our whole being, our identity. We're going to take the next few weeks, we're going to unpack what each one of these points in Micah 6.8 means functionally. It's like I said, I don't like the abstract as much. 
But what does it mean to seek justice? What does it mean to love mercy? What does it mean to walk humbly with our God? Because if we explore these things, I think we'll begin to understand what it means when I say that Christ desires not our professions or our practice, not our actions or our doctrine, but that he desires us and our hearts. It reminds me very much of what the psalmist says when he said, your law is written not in our mind, not in our actions. When the psalmist writes that your law, O Lord, is written on our hearts. I want to invite you the next three weeks, we're going to unpack that and what that means. And I hope that you'll get to the place I was eventually, years later when I graduated high school, and I realized exactly why that coach had me do all that conditioning and strength training is because it improved me. It made me better. I didn't actually know why I didn't connect the rationale to the action. But I hope in the next few weeks, all of you can do that a lot quicker than I ever could. That we do the things written in this passage for a reason. And that reason is that Christ desires each one of us. And he wants to write his law of love, his law of mercy and justice and humility. Not just in some profession of faith somewhere, not just in how we live our lives every now and then on Sunday morning, but he wants to write that on our hearts. And I know for some people that's about as fun or as exciting as going to the weight room sometimes. And sometimes for me, especially parts of those three things are about as exciting as getting up early and putting my shoes on and going running each morning. But as much as I know I need to do that, I know I need to do these things. Because at the end of the day, they shape my heart. And they make me who I am. And I hope in the next three weeks they might shape yours as well. And because Christ is the one thing we have together, they might make you who you are. I pray that you be might be made into the image of God through the mercy, justice, and humility that Christ calls us to. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.